Hope you all are doing well. Uh, my name is Ben Rankin. For those of you that don't know me, I'm the worship leader, usually up here with the guitar, not up here with a, a microphone to talk for some time, but i um, glad to be uh, have this opportunity this morning and uh, just be able to open the scriptures with you all. Um, we're continuing in our doctrine series. This morning we're talking about the doctrine of worship, and so if you're familiar with church world, this is the normal token sermon they ask the worship leader to preach, so that's why I'm here. Um, I'm grateful for it though, and it's, it's, uh, it's kind of weird or ironic in a way, because as you'll see, worship and what worship means biblically, um, music is a really small part of that. Um, it's certainly not exclusive to music. Um, worship is not all about music and by any stretch of the imagination, and so um, I'm grateful just to be able to, to talk from the Word this morning for a little bit um, and to talk about worship. So let me start, um, if you would just pray with me, and then we'll jump into some, some material here. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you for today. Um, thank you that your Word is true. Thank you that you work through your Word to guide us into truth, to convict us of our sin, um, and to reveal yourself to us. I ask that you would do that this morning. I ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts and in our minds this morning, causing us to see and understand who Jesus is and what he has done, and help us to understand worship and how we respond to you today. Um, So God, we need you desperately. I need your spirit in me, and we all need your spirit this morning to move in us, to do something in us that no man can do, that no um, words can accomplish, but that only you can accomplish, um, to draw us to yourself and to cause us to see and to respond to you. So God, I pray that you would do that for your glory and for your name's sake, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I'll start out just by giving you a little bit of my background. Um, kind of my church-related background. I grew up in the church. Um, I was actually in two different Presbyterian churches growing up. Um, If you were here last week and you heard the sermon on what Arminianism is and what Calvinism is, um, Presbyterians are generally Reformed. They're Calvinists, so to speak. And uh, I grew up as a homeschooler that went to a Presbyterian church, and I defended Arminianism, um, which is ironic. It shouldn't happen that way. In fact, um, I was homeschooled, and so... This is, I say this like it's a natural outworking of being homeschooled, but um, at about 12 years old, I discovered this website called homeschooldebate.com. It exists. You can Google it. It's a real thing. Um, And I engaged on this website, a little confession time, um, and I got into this weird debate discussion about Arminianism and Calvinism, and I was like, we choose and all this stuff, and I was defending Arminianism as a homeschooled Presbyterian growing up. Um, if you understand those things, it's funny, and if you want to laugh, feel free, because it's funny, and a little ridiculous. Um, but those, those two churches I grew up at, the first one was really traditional. We sang out of a hymnal. Uh, we sang, you know, with a piano, and it was, it was a traditional style, and we sang old songs, right? That's all, all hymns, basically. And then the second church that I went to, we, we started going there right around the late 90s and into the early 2000s, and it was a, it was a weird time for church music if you were around church in that time. Um, the whole contemporary movement was rising, and there was this whole battle over whether we should sing old songs or new songs and what instruments we should use, and fought over all kinds of things that matter very little to God. Um, but it was an interesting place to be in a church that came from a traditional, they sang out of a hymn book and things, they went through all these changes, it was a larger church, they were trying to 
please the generations and, you know, kind of build a, a bridge between the older generations and the younger generations. Um, and then the next natural, just completely normal part of my story is that I went from being raised an Arminian Presbyterian to a Pentecostal church from there where I started playing guitar and joined a youth worship band and was involved in a, a church that was Pentecostal, which I won't really define it, but it, they put a huge emphasis on the Holy Spirit and the working of the Holy Spirit, and to an extent, rightly so, and I have brothers and sisters in that uh, church still and love them, and so um, I'm grateful for the time that I had there. It was a weird transition to go from Presbyterians who are lovingly referred to by some of Christian people as the frozen chosen to Pentecostal, which is anything but frozen, and they wouldn't say they're chosen, and so it's just this weird transition, and so I come from that, and then Pentecostal, and then now I'm here at Remedy, and I would be a Reformed Baptist, and so it's a very odd uh, background. I'm grateful for it, though. I really am. Um, I kind of mock it. I kind of make fun of it, but I'm grateful that my parents raised me in church. I'm grateful that my parents let me make some decisions, in a sense, of where I went to church, that they weren't like, oh, we're, we raised you Presbyterian, so you're going to be Presbyterian, but they allowed me to um, see some other uh, streams of the faith and to be shaped by those things. Um, so I, I share this with you because we all have a story and a background that helps us, that influences us. Sometimes it doesn't help us, but that influences what we think about worship, what we, how we define worship, what when we hear the word worship, what we think and what we feel is significantly shaped by our background. Even if you weren't raised in the church, um, when you hear that word worship, you think of something. And so we all have some place that we're coming from. And this morning, what I want to do is I want to look at what biblical worship is. And it, it may fly in the face of a little bit, or it may change and say, wait, that's not what I thought it was. It may, may cause you to take a step back and to think about some things. And so I want us all to do that together. Ultimately, our experiences should not shape the doctrine of worship, but scripture should shape the doctrine of worship. And so let's, uh, let's dive in together. Um, I've got a definition of biblical worship that I want to read, and then we'll kind of work through it piece by piece. So just right off the bat, um, Worship, the word itself means to ascribe worth, to give value to something, to um, say that this thing is worth something, it's valuable in my life. That's just literally what it means. And uh, my definition of biblical worship is this. Worship is the joyful work of doing everything to the glory of God in response to the person and work of God as our creator and savior. So let's talk about that just kind of piece by piece here. The first part Worship is the joyful work. Worship is work. It requires action. It requires some effort on our part. But it's joyful work. It's not meant to make us miserable. It's not meant to push us down or or make us feel like we are just doing all of the things that are no fun at all and just make us miserable and sad and depressed. No, worship is joyful work. Psalm 4 verse 7 says, You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Another way to say that is that there is more joy to be found in God than there is in the greatest wealth, in the greatest pleasure, in the greatest earthly joy that we could ever seek in anything else. There's more joy in God, there's more joy in worshiping God than there is in ascribing worth or value to anything else in all of creation. It is the most joyful work 
to worship God. Next little section there, worship is a joyful work of doing everything to the glory of God. So it's not just Sunday, it's not just this gathering, it's not just music. Worship is life. We are all worshipers, and with all of our life, we worship something. The object of our worship is very important, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Now let me read Romans 12, verse 1, that talks about worship being all of life. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers... By the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And so worship is this offering of our bodies. It's not just an action. It's not just music coming out of our lungs. It is not attending a church service, but it is our lives. It is our bodies as a living sacrifice of worship. Let me read Colossians 3 also. I don't think this one's on the screen, but 3, 16 and 17. And Colossians says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so in those verses, we see singing, right? We're commanded to sing, and that's part of worship. But it's whatever you do, word and deed, is to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so worship is all of life. It's everything from waking up to going to sleep, and from Monday until Sunday, the whole week, your whole day, all of life is worship. So let's think about just for a second worship before the fall. Adam and Eve were created in the garden and sin had not entered the world. When did Adam and Eve worship? There wasn't a church service. There probably was music, but we don't know. Scripture doesn't record any music that I'm aware of before sin entered the world. So when did they worship? What was worship? I think the better question is not when did Adam and Eve worship, but when didn't they worship? Worship for them was their life as they obeyed the commands of God to work in the garden, and as they enjoyed creation that God had created them to live in, they delighted in God himself, and they delighted in God through what God had made. They were always worshiping. In fact, not just Adam and Eve, but all of creation before sin demonstrated unhindered, uninterrupted worship of God. Creation brought glory to God passively as it was his creation. And Adam and Eve, man and woman, created in the image of God, brought glory to Jesus and to God actively all the time, with all of their lives. So worship is the joyful work of doing everything to the glory of God. Next little part there, in response. Worship is a response. Worship doesn't start with us. Worship starts with God. God initiates worship, he acts, he pursues, he loves, he reveals, and we respond. So worship is a response. There's two words in the New Testament for worship, um, two Greek words. The first one, we'll just talk about these briefly, is proskuneo. This is found in John 4, among other places in the New Testament, when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. We'll look at this verse in a little bit. But he just says, time is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. 
And then he's looking for worshipers who will worship. That word worship right there is proskuneo. Okay, it means literally to kiss the hand. Okay, it's about posture. That's what I want you to think about. When you think proskuneo, it's about posture. It's this image of, of a person coming and kneeling before a king or a member of royalty and kissing the hand. And it's a sign of humility. It's a sign of honor and of respect of someone greater. It's about posture. Okay, the second word is latreia. Might be pronouncing these wrong, um, but it is what it is. Um, Romans 12 that we read, where um, we're appealed, Paul is appealing for our bodies to be offered as living sacrifices. This is our spiritual worship. That word worship in Romans 12 is latreia. It means literally service to God. It's about action. It's about doing things. Worship is about posture. It's about our hearts. It's about how we approach God and how we think about God and how we love God. And it's also about service. It's about action. It's about doing. We can't I don't think you can have true worship with just one or the other. You can't just feel your way and think your way into worshiping God the way he's called us to worship. And you can't just act legalistically with no heart, with no posture, with no honor or respect for the glory of God. And it really truly be biblical worship. It has to be both. It has to be the posture of our heart as we approach and the action. One example of each of these, um, one way that God initiates for us to worship him, respond to him, is that he created the world. And we respond, we worship to God's initiative of creation by living in and stewarding and enjoying creation in a way that magnifies him as creator. And so there's another text that says, whether we eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. So eating can be done to the glory of God. It's not about an action Everybody eats the same way. There's not a certain way to do the act of eating to where you're glorifying God, but it's about posture. It's about proskuneo. It's about not, as Matt Chandler says, having your worship terminate on the thing. We're not worshiping the food or the taste or the experience, but true worship of God and those types of things are worshiped in a way that magnifies God as creator, that he created us so that we can enjoy those things, that he created food, that we might, it might sustain us and that we could enjoy it. And so when we eat, we worship God through that. And it's about the posture of our hearts, not necessarily about the action. Another way God initiates is he speaks to us through his word. We respond, a worshipful response to God's word is obedience. Not just hearing and having this posture of, oh, that's good, I believe that, that's true, but doing what it says. James says if we're merely hearers of the word, but not doers, that we deceive ourselves. There's this self-deception that comes from just hearing God's word and then doing nothing with it. It's deception. It's not somebody else deceiving us. It's us deceiving us, thinking that because we've heard it and because we know it, because we have this knowledge and this understanding that somehow it has benefit or it's where God, that's all God wants from us. It's not. Action must follow. As we offer our lives, we respond to God's initiative of speaking to us through his word with obedience. That's how we worship. So it's posture and it's action. Another place we see this God initiates and we respond um, is in 1 John. When the, John writes, we love because he first loved us. Our response of love toward God is exactly that. It's a response. It's not that we just all of a sudden felt like we're going to love. We're going to love God. We're going to serve God. We're going to worship God. It's in response to him showing his love to us in Christ. 
So God pursues, God initiates, and we respond. Let's think back to the garden. Let's think back to Adam and Eve. You may have heard this phrase talked about that the Bible records, I believe it's in Genesis chapter 3, where it says that God came and walked in the garden in the cool of the day. I've always heard that described as this picture of mankind, of Adam and Eve's perfect relationship that they had with God, how they walked with him in the cool of the day, and they had this beautiful, unbroken, face-to-face relationship. That, that very well may be true, but there's one important thing that happens before the Bible records God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That action is sin. The actual um, recording of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day is after Adam and Eve sinned. And so I think it's in the Bible primarily to demonstrate not the beautiful relationship that Adam and Eve had before sin with God, although that's true, they did have that, but God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, I think demonstrates for us God's divine initiative to seek and to save the lost. That we know that even when we rebel and we turn and we run away from God in disobedience and in rebellion, that he pursues us that God doesn't remove himself from the garden and say, I'm never going back there because they rejected me. They wanted to worship something else other than me. They decided that what I created was greater than me. God in his love pursued. Adam and Eve turned and sinned and God came and sought them out. And so there's this initiative of God in creation And also, even after sin, after we made that choice and willfully disobeyed him, he still pursues, he still seeks us out. And so in the garden, we see not this perfect relationship demonstrated, although that was true. We see God's loving, fatherly pursuit of us as our Savior and as our Creator. Demonstrates his heart to seek and to save the lost. And so worship is a response We're already getting into some of this, but what do we respond to? First thing we respond to is the person of God. God himself in his holiness, his nature, his character, and his very essence of who God is is reason enough for us to worship. Scripture talks about and and God proclaims himself to be holy. Okay, What does that actually mean? I've heard it explained a bunch of different ways. Um, A lot of them are helpful. I think J.I. Packer has a quote here I want to read to you that I think is very helpful to help us understand what it means when the scriptures say that God is holy. So J.I. Packer writes, when scripture calls God holy, the word signifies everything about God that sets him apart from us and makes him an object of awe, adoration, and dread to us. And so his holiness is what, it literally means set apart. It literally means different. And so when we think about God's holiness, it's almost this attribute of God that sums up so many other attributes of God that distinguish him from us. So when we say that God is holy, it means we can't compare him to anything. It can't, we, can, we can compare in some really, really incomplete way, but we can't really say that God is like that. There is no illustration that fully encompasses the holiness of God and who he is. So when I think about holiness, sometimes I think about this purity, right? This absence of evil, this he's never done anything wrong. He's perfect and without sin and without spot or blemish. That's true. 
think another part of God's holiness is not just the absence of evil, but the presence of, the embodiment of everything that is good and perfect and righteous. So think about it this way. There is absolutely nothing. There's no trait. There's no action. There's no attribute. There's no word. There's nothing that you could add to God to improve upon his being in nature. Nothing. Everything good, everything that would make him powerful and glorious and loving and just and good and all the things that he is already exists within the nature and character of God. You can't improve upon him. You can't make him better. So that's what we think about when we think of God's holiness. And we think about worship and ascribing worth to things. God alone possesses this intrinsic value, this intrinsic worth, and this infinite value, and this infinite worth. And so when we worship, God is the only ultimate object of our worship. Because he is the only one that intrinsically and infinitely has value and has worth. So we respond to the person of God and his holiness and his character. And we respond to the works of God as our creator and our savior. There's other works of God we can respond to. There's probably specific works of God in our lives that should cause us to worship. But scripture as a whole, I think, reveals God in two primary ways that are supposed to cause us to worship him. His work as creator and his work as savior. So let's talk about each one of those briefly. Um, I'll read a couple texts about God as our creator. Psalm 95 verse 6 says, Oh come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. He made us. He created us. And that should cause us to respond and worship to him. Additionally, Psalm 100 says, serve the Lord with gladness. Worship is joyful work. We're to serve him with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And so God is creator should cause us to respond not just in the sense that he made us in his power, but that he chose to make us in his image and to bestow love and grace on us in a way that he does not bestow on anything else in his creation. So we should worship God as our creator because he made us. And we should worship God because of his work as our savior. I'm going to read a couple of verses from John 3 could be some of the most familiar words in Scripture, and I would just beg you before I read them to look at them with fresh eyes and to not hear this and go, I've heard that a thousand times because it's beautiful and it is glorious. The, the language of God is our Savior in sending Christ. Hear these words. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God is our savior. We see as he sent Christ, it's this completion, it's this this finished work of what the, the same divine initiative that we saw in the garden with God pursuing after sin entered the world. 
It's almost like that God coming to walk in the garden of the cool of the day was this promise like, I'm starting something here that I'm pursuing you even though you sinned and I'm going to finish it. And when he sent Christ, he finished the work of redemption. So again, as the whole definition, worship is the joyful work of doing everything to the glory of God in response to the person and work of God as our creator and savior. I want to spend uh, a good portion of time here working through a framework I'm borrowing from Mike Cosper in a book called Rhythms of Grace. Um, he calls it Worship 123, and it's just that in worship there's one object, there's two contexts, and there's three audiences. So I just want to work through that real quick. Our one object of worship is God and Trinity. If that object changes and becomes anything other than the God of the Bible, the scriptures call that idolatry. It is worship, but really it's idolatry. It's making something that was created, something that does not have ultimate and infinite value and worth, and it's saying, I'm going to worship that because I think that is greater than and better than God. That's idolatry. That can be anything. Anything that we give our lives to, that we invest our money into, that we give our time towards can reflect what we're worshiping. And so the only right object of our worship, of biblical worship, is God in Trinity, that he is one God that exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Uh, I'll now look at John 4. This is that word proskuneo that we talked about earlier. just want to read this one verse, John 4, verse 23. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So there's lots of different ways that people have understood this. The way I understand how we're supposed to worship the Father in spirit and in truth is this. We're worshiping God in Trinity. And we worship the Father in spirit. That word for spirit is the same word that's used throughout the New Testament to refer to the person, God the Holy Spirit. And we see that word truth Worship in spirit and truth. That word truth is the same word that Jesus, is used, that Jesus uses in John 14, 6 when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so we worship God the Father through the mediation of God the Son by the power of God the Holy Spirit. We worship God in Trinity. Let's take just a few minutes. I want to talk about each one of those members of the Trinity, those persons one God, three persons. Let's talk about God the Father. It's not a mistake. It's not an accident that the first person of the Trinity is called God the Father. This is some place where our background and our story, our experience comes into play heavily. Because some of us have fathers that make trying to see and view God as Father in a positive light an extremely difficult thing. Some of us have great fathers that have loved us, that have provided for us, that have led us to Christ and been an example for us. Even that is but a shadow. Even the best father is but a poor image of what God is to us and for us as our father. And so when I think about the first person of the Trinity, God the Father, what comes to my mind a lot of times is this wrathful God in the Old Testament, right? This God who poured out judgment, this God who punished sin. 
And that's, that's absolutely true. In his holiness, he has a righteous hatred of sin, and that sin deserves and demands punishment. He's also the perfect father that loves, that provides, that pursues, that lays down his own life for us. So here's the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, we see the wrath of God, the Father, And in the New Testament, we see Jesus coming as a man, and on two occasions, God the Father speaks to Jesus in an audible voice that other people heard too, and says, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And so, if you have put your faith in Christ, if you are in Christ, then all that wrath that God has toward your sin was placed on Jesus. And all that is left for you when God the Father looks at you is you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That's all we get. Jesus took all the wrath of the Father and we get all of his love and all of his provision and all of his goodness and his kindness towards us as a loving and perfect Father. God the Son, let me read 1 Timothy 2 verse 5. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. The only way that our worship is acceptable and pleasing in God's sight is through the finished work of Jesus Christ. It is through his blood. Jesus mediates between us and God. Hear me on this. There's no pastor. There's no worship leader. There's no guy with a guitar. There's nobody that can lead you into the presence of God except for Jesus. He alone can lead you into the presence of God and mediate between God's holiness and your sin. Mike Cosper says this, we never get past the need for Jesus to mediate between God's holiness and our sin. We never get past that. It's, it's a constant reality that Jesus always does mediate. We don't have to be concerned that will he mediate today or will he not. He has once for all paid the price for our sin, but we never move past that. We never come to the Father except through Jesus. Always our worship is mediated by Jesus, by God the Son. So listen to this. If If you've been a Christian for all or most of your life, you've been in church forever, or if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian today and you're here, hear these words. Our sin is real. We all have sin passed down from Adam and Eve, and we all willfully run and disobey holy God and make idols in our lives and pursue other things as having ultimate worth and ultimate value. We are sinful people. If that, if that seems foreign to you or if that hurts on some level, then just look at your life and look at the world around you. Can you really think that everything's perfect? Can you, can you not look back on something in your life that you would redo, that you regret, that you're ashamed of? Something. You, would you really say that you're perfect, that you've never done anything that's wrong? We all have sin. All of us. And so when we feel that, and I pray that God the Holy Spirit is convicting us now of that sin. When we feel that, what do we do with it? Do we feel 
the weight of the wrath of God for that sin? If we put our faith in Christ, if we count his death as our death, and we believe with everything that is within us that when Jesus came and put on flesh, he also came and put on our sin. And he went to the cross, and our sin was nailed to that cross in the body of Jesus. If we put our faith in, in that, in Christ alone, then we, we don't feel any of that wrath. In fact, all of that wrath of God and that punishment for our sin is, has been removed for us. It has been paid for. It was put on Jesus Christ. And now we hear God the Father speaking to us and saying, you are mine. You are my child. You are my beloved with whom I'm well pleased. That's the gospel. If you're not a Christian this morning, you hear nothing else, hear that. And put your faith in Jesus. Acknowledge your sin. Repent and turn away from it. Move the other direction towards worshiping Jesus and not worshiping sin. And not worshiping whatever idols are in your life. Last person of the Trinity. One God, three persons. God the Holy Spirit. We worship the Father in spirit and truth. Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16. He says, Jesus says that when the Spirit comes, he will glorify me. We know that the Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus. It's always, always, always a mark of the working of the Holy Spirit when Jesus is made known, when Jesus is glorified, when Jesus is magnified. That is the Holy Spirit's work. Jesus also says the Spirit will guide you into all truth. This is super important. We live in a day where truth is questioned, where truth is twisted, where we're told there isn't any truth, where truth is something of the past, and we've evolved past that, and you can have truth for you, and I can have truth for me, but there is no real truth. And I would just say that in order for me to believe that, that has to be absolutely true. Right? And so the question is not about truth and if there is truth. It has to exist. The question is, what is the truth? And if, if we as Christians or non-Christians believe that things are true because we heard it somewhere, because a pastor told us, because we heard it from this source or that source, we're on extremely not solid ground. We're on sand. We're on something that we're not going to stand on for long. We desperately need the work of God the Holy Spirit to guide us into truth through the scriptures that we might know what is true because God the Holy Spirit has guided us there, has taken us there, not just because we heard it somewhere, we were raised that way, or that's what our parents told us, but because God the Holy Spirit guides us into that truth. We need that assurance. We need that solid foundation, knowing that we've been taken into the truth and the truth has been revealed to us by God the Holy Spirit. It's one of the reasons he was sent. <clears throat> the Holy Spirit also convicts us of sin. We can somewhat know our sin as I was asking you to think about your life and if there's something that you were ashamed of or you regret, if you really understood in that moment the weight of your sin, that's the work of God the Holy Spirit. That's something that God does to convict us of our sin and to show us that we desperately need a Savior, to show us that we desperately need Jesus. 
And so while our worship is mediated by Jesus, God the Son, our worship is very, very dependent on God the Holy Spirit. We worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So that's our one object of worship, God and Trinity. We have two contexts, gathered and scattered. So this is the gathering. This is gathered worship. We're worshiping together. We don't come in this building to start worshiping. Worship doesn't start when the countdown ends or when the music starts. Worship continues in a gathered context. The issue of Sunday morning is not when worship starts or stops, but it's the context. It's a new context. We're gathering together, together as a people of God, as the family of God, to worship together. So it's not the act or the object or any of those things that changes. It's just the context of gathered worship. Let me read this from Hebrews 10. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we're told in Scripture not, ne- not to neglect meeting together. And the reason that, I get, that it gives, I think, is really crucial because I think it's easier to neglect coming to church. It's easier to neglect gathered worship if it's all about me and what I need. But what does it say? Don't neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so this gathering is not just about you coming to be entertained and about an audience and a stage. It's about a people of God encouraging one another, opening the scriptures together, worshiping together. It's important, and we're told not to neglect this. We, we start in those services. Um, if you've ever been here when the service started, you know this. That was kind of a jab. We'll get there. I'm going to press a little bit. Um, We start the services with something we call a call to worship. It's not that we're calling for worship to begin, but we're reading scripture, we're praying, and we're seeking God together for him to reveal himself to us that we might encourage one another, that we might be reminded of the truth of the gospel that we are prone to forget that we might be reminded of the character and the nature of God that we are prone to ignore. And we need that. I would encourage you to be at church before it starts. Not so you can hear me talk, not so that you can hear the music, but for your heart and for your soul to be encouraged, to be reminded, to be exhorted by the word of God that we're reminding ourselves of who we're worshiping and of why we're worshiping him. And we're doing that together. It's important. You're a part of that. It's going to start without you, but you're a part of it. And it's important that you're here. And so we start our gatherings with a call to worship. And every other part of the service is worship. Worship is not just the music here on a Sunday morning. The preaching, this right now is worship. As I said earlier, that God initiates by giving us his word and we respond in obedience. So our worship right now, as we submit to the word of God together, I'm using this language intentionally, it's not as you submit to me, but it's as we submit to the word of God. It's worship. We're hearing the scriptures. 
It's important that we complete the cycle and become doers of the scriptures when we leave, but this is part of it. And together we're sitting under the authority of the scriptures. You're not sitting under my authority. We are sitting under the authority of the scriptures. And it's worship. Preaching is worship. And hearing the word is worship. We do worship through singing. Here's the small piece of the pie. We finally got to it. I don't know how long in. All right, now we're going to talk about music. Okay, there's a whole book in the Bible. It's the longest book in the Bible, the Psalms, 150 songs. Okay? We're supposed to sing, all right? I could leave it at that. There's over 100 commands in the Psalms to sing. It's extremely literal and somewhat redundant. There's songs about singing. We sing, reminding ourselves we're supposed to sing. Okay? It's a good thing. We're to do that together. It's how we, one of the ways that we respond in worship to God in obedience to his scriptures is by singing. I would just encourage you. I don't care if you have a good voice or what you think about your voice. Use it and sing with the people of God for the glory of God. Don't just watch other people. Be a worshiper yourself and sing. Sing. We also worship through giving. Um, there's three words in the New Testament. You can find these in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, or at least they're illustrated. 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. Three words in the New Testament that talk about how our giving should be shaped, right? The giving of our finances. We do that during the service as well. We don't just pass a plate because that's what churches do, okay? We do it because we're commanded to give. And the three words are joyful, generous, and sacrificial. Joyful, generous, sacrificial. One of those words is not tithe. If you have questions about that, feel free to talk to Fudd or Jack because I'm not going to get into it. All right. Another little jab. Probably shouldn't have jabbed that one. Okay. Um, so the first word, I'm going to reorder them just a little bit, but generous. We're told to be generous. The posture of our heart towards giving should not be as little as possible, should not be just barely what I think I can muster but it should be generous. The posture of our hearts should be wanting, desiring to give more. If we're not able because of our situation or our means, that's one thing. But our hearts should be transformed to want to be generous. We should have desires to give far more than we ever would possibly be able to give. We should give generously. We should give joyfully. God loves a cheerful giver. Not, not to give begrudgingly, thinking of all the things that we could have done with that money. Not to give with a heart that's cold and just says we're supposed to do this. But with a heart that's joyful, knowing that everything we have has come from God. And it's a joy to be able to give some of that to his work through his church. And the last word, sacrificial. It does talk about in 2 Corinthians, people giving even beyond their means. Perhaps we need to redefine and rethink about what we mean by what we're able to give. Maybe we're able to give more than we think we are. I think that's a, a good possibility. Those last two words, joyful and sacrificial, they can work together. They seem weird, right? You think about sacrificial and you're like, oh, that's supposed to make me sad. It's not a sacrifice unless I'm mad about it. So how can... We give sacrificially and joyfully. Can we give sacrificially and joyfully? I would just point to the example of Christ. Hebrews 12 said, 
that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, scorning its shame. He gave his life sacrificially for the joy that was set before him. If it's hard for you to put a little bit of money into the plate joyfully, then I would just encourage you to fix your eyes on the sacrifice of Jesus and to think about him bearing your sin and your shame on the cross and to just use your imagination to think of the greatest joy that you could possibly imagine and that is why he did that. That is why he sacrificed himself for the joy that was set before him. We also worship through the ordinances or the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, their responses of worship in obedience. <clears throat> the posture of our heart's important. The action is important. We heard a sermon on those um, a week or two ago. You can get some more information there. I don't have time to cover all of that. So our two contexts, we have gathered worship and we have scattered worship. When we leave these doors, we leave as worshipers that will continuously be worshiping something. We're sent out of this place as missionaries, as Jesus was sent from heaven to earth to pursue us and love us. We, the people of God, are sent out of this gathering to know and to love the people of the world and to share the gospel with them and to live lives that show, our lives should show that Jesus is more valuable than anything else. Our lives outside of these doors should demand an explanation of why we do what we do. It should not make sense unless you understand the gospel. Our lives should demand an explanation as we worship living lives as missionaries in the world scattered about. Two contexts gathered, scattered. Three audiences. God, the church, and the world. If you want to quote Big Daddy Weave, don't. So, the audience of one concept is, um, I, I think I, I agree with what the song is saying. It's about that we worship God alone, but there's a reality that when we worship right here, there's more people here than just God. God is here. He's present. There's also other people, okay? So when we worship, there's an audience of God, the church, and the world. So God is present when we're gathered. God is present when we're scattered, the church is present. There's other Christians here as we're worshiping together. That's the point of gathered worship, right? Together with one voice to glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's Christians here. There should also be Christians in our lives as we scatter. We shouldn't live as a lone wolf. We should live in community. We should live with other Christians in our lives. In the world, there should be people here that aren't Christians. We should invite them here. There should also be people in our lives outside of here that aren't Christians. Our lives should be lived in front of unbelievers, and it should demand an explanation. This one, probably the most difficult thing, most convicting thing in this sermon to me. Part of it is because of my role at the church, that I work at the church, and I'm around church people a lot, but it's not the reason why. It's really... That would be an excuse and a selfishness that because I'm comfortable, I want to be there. I think Jesus is a great example that he left the comforts of heaven to seek and to save the lost and to become a man. And as our example in that, we should live our lives around in the world, but not of the world. But our lives should be lived in front of unbelievers. They should, there should be an audience as we're worshiping with our lives that 
when it demands an explanation and when we explain it, not just when it's demanded, explain why we're living that way, we communicate the gospel. So worship one, two, three, there's one object, there's two contexts, and there's three audiences. So how do we respond? I got four quick things we'll run through. We respond, firstly, we thank God for every good thing and worship Him as we enjoy creation. And the only thing I'll say about this is that it, it takes stopping for a moment to do this. Before a meal, as you're driving and you see the beauty of creation, as you're enjoying a good gift from God, it takes just pausing for a moment and thanking God for it and recognizing that it's not God, but that it was made by Him for us to enjoy. To take a minute when we're with our family and to thank God for family. To take a minute before we eat a meal and to really, not, not just because it's what we do, but to really thank God that He provided food, that He made us to enjoy it and to thank Him and praise Him and worship Him through created things. Secondly, the second response, engage in corporate worship. Be present, action, posture of your heart, important, approaching God, but engage. Let me, let me just ask this question. I would encourage us all to think about what, what's the reaction or the posture of our heart when we're faced with a decision that's going to cause us to miss this gathering. What, what do we think? We think no big deal. We think it's fine. What's the posture of our heart when we're thinking about corporate worship? Is the posture of our heart less and less? As little as possible? Is it as long as I'm here more than other people? Or is the posture of our heart what Hebrews tells us it should be more and more as the day draws near? Let me press a little more. And I'm not angry as I'm saying this. I love you. But if you serve in any area here at Remedy, does the posture of your heart change on whether you can miss a Sunday morning based on whether you're serving or not? In other words, if I'm not serving, do I really need to be there? Is it easier to miss just because you're not serving? And if that's the case, I would just encourage you to think differently. That you don't just come because you have a job to do, but you come because you're a member of the family. You don't miss a holiday with family or a gathering with family just because, most of us, right? We don't come because we have to bring something to the family meal. We come because we're part of the family. And so I would just ask you to examine the posture of your heart towards corporate worship and what it it means to you and why we're here. We don't get this opportunity very often. I mean, it's once a week, and maybe more often than we do a lot of things, but it's, it's a wonderful thing to come together with the family of God and to encourage one another and to worship God together. So what's the posture of your heart when it comes to that? Third thing, engage in scattered worship through community. We've organized scattered worship here at Remedy to take place in community groups. If you're not in a community group, I would encourage you to Try one out to engage your life of scattered worship among the people of God. 
And if you're in a community group or you lead a community group, then I would maybe challenge you to think about how your community can live its life of scattered worship in view of the world. Are we insulating ourselves and just living our lives of worship among the church but not among the world? And so how can we participate in worship in the sight of God, the church, and the world? And lastly, this one's so important. The other ones are mainly practical, but the fourth thing is to fight, to behold the glory of God. We become like that which we worship. We become like whatever our God is, whatever we make the object of our worship, we become like it. Second Corinthians 3 says that together beholding the glory of the Lord, we're transformed from one degree of glory to another, that transformation happens, that we're changed by what we see. The Old Testament talks about it too, that those who worship idols become like them. And so it's so important that we fight, that word is intentional, it's strong, and it's intended to be. And we have to fight because there's all kinds of other things from our flesh to our culture to Satan and his demons themselves that are fighting against us. That's a reality. It shouldn't paralyze us with fear, but we should acknowledge and recognize that there are things that are fighting against us beholding the glory of God. All kinds of things, every day, every week, there are things that are put in front of our faces that are intended to distract us, to cloud our vision, to to make us look at something else, and to ignore and to just make light of the glory of God. It's a fight. And if you're not fighting, you're losing. That's the reality. If we don't fight, we lose that battle. Every time. And so we have to fight to behold the glory of God. We have to fight to read Scripture. We have to fight to seek and to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to guide us in the truth, to convict us of our sin, to have a real and a genuine relationship that's life-giving as we spend time with our Creator and with our Savior, this holy God, and we behold Him. And we just completely take our attention off of all the distractions and all the practical things and all of the world, and we say, I am going to fight to behold Jesus in his glory. We become like that which we worship, and if our eyes are fixed on things of this world, and our eyes are fixed on our own selfish desires, and our eyes are fixed on good things all around us, or sinful things all around us, our worship will be weak. Our worship will be shallow. Our worship will not be biblical. And so we have to fight to behold the glory of God. That requires posture and that requires action. And so I would ask you, what are you going to do? It'll be different for all of us, but what is it for you? How are you going to fight? We all have to fight. We're all being battled against, and we have to fight. I want to finish by reading a number of verses from Colossians 1. You can follow along on the screen. Let's fix our eyes and our attention on Christ, on who He is, and then we'll pray and stand and sing together. 
He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. All things were created through Jesus. God, the creator. He's the king. He's the only sovereign. He reigns and rules over all things. He is enthroned above everything. He holds everything together. He sustains his creation that he made. And he's the reconciler. Reconciling all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Making peace by the blood of his cross. This God who's holy, who created us, and who saved us is worthy of our worship. Let's pray together. Father, help us. Help us to see and to know your holiness and your works deeper and greater than we ever have. Help us to fight to behold your glory and cause us to respond rightly, I pray. Cause us to respond with our lives. And as we sing together, Father, I pray that you would move our hearts to know that we don't worship you alone, but we worship you with our family. You are our God and we are your people. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.